Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, Charlie Harold. It's the gamification that if you play this game and you give me information, I'm going to give you a, a special something. All of these essentially advertising gimmicks that have been around since the beginning of time, it seems, you know, cave drawings. Fundamentally, it's the same thing. They're trying to get people to opt in and they're trying to get people to do that. It's a complex. It absolutely is. Hey, pay attention to human nature. People don't make decisions and they're not motivated by logic uh, and compliance and checklists and, the, and rational thinking. <laughs> they're That's motivated right. by their emotions and their experiences. So my minimum has always been the best cameras that I can get for the money um, versus, well, we have a camera and we got coverage in there and it's good enough. Nope, never good enough. It's better, it better be right or it's not worth doing that. We'll figure something else out. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Phil Dunkelberger is president and CEO of Knock Knock Labs and has spent more than 30 years in the technology field. Prior to founding PGP, he served as entrepreneur in residence at Dahl Capital Management, president and CEO of Embark, and president and COO of Vantive Corp. Mr. Phil, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. Now, I'm really excited to speak to you. You're one of the original founding members of Pretty Good Privacy way back in the day. You know a lot about data privacy. Today's topic is the California Consumer Protection Act. I think, in my mind, it's probably the best gold standard for this in the United States. Give us a little overview about uh, what CCPA does. Well, really what CCPA is intending to do, and it's intended what it was designed to do, is fundamentally let people control their their data and data about themselves, their privacy, their uh, what people do with their privacy, et cetera, and, and how that promulgates itself once it's out on the web. You know, the, the, you hear the term opt-in. It lets you opt-in to their use of your, your data, essentially. And it was well-intentioned because a lot of people on the internet don't know what happens when people are accepting or putting data into somebody's system. Started back in the 2000s. I remember I was at Disney and, uh, I was charged security. I made employee IDs for everybody. And the company policy before I got there was, you put down your social security number, that's your employee ID number. And I said, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. And I had to go up to the legal department to tell them that was against the law, especially in California. And we changed it eventually. So it's amazing how even really big companies don't quite get this whole privacy thing. Yeah, privacy is a regional issue around the world. And I think if you look at Europe, and what they evolved to with GDPR as an example of a set of regulatory things or California's evolved to and opting in for your data for a privacy standpoint. Regionally, culturally, people have different views of what privacy means on the internet. And I think we see more and more of it. Consumers are being dramatically impacted by the fact that they don't know how people are using their private data. Let's distinguish GDRP, that's the European version, from the California version. In my mind, GDRP says, we assume that Google or Facebook do not have access to your data automatically, and we're going to go from that point of view. Whereas in California, they just say, you know, you, we already have access to your data, Google and Facebook, but if you guys breach that, we're going to fine you for it. There are two different philosophies towards that, isn't there? Yeah, and I think it comes back to what I just said about global, cultural, regional differences of views of privacy. Europe has a tremendously deep suspicion about people collecting information and using it in bad ways. I think that the last hundred years shows some of that, but it goes way back. 
about um, about how people track people with data. And I think that their assumption is, is that if people are collecting data, they have to be good stewards of it. I think in the California standpoint is the internet has been so open for so long and so many people have put data into these different, call it silos of information, that now what they're saying is, hey, they already have your data. You need to decide what you want to allow them to do with it or not. And I think it goes back to where these things from a privacy viewpoint begin. Now, does it go far enough in California? Here's my point of view on that. If I'm making uh, you know, a million dollars a year off a bunch of people because I'm a top photographer in Google, right? And they use my map photos or I'm a contributor to uh, online reviews and things like that. Do I care if I got to pay a couple billion dollars in fines? Because I, I already made more money on that other ways. Well, I think there's there's two sides to that coin. I think the one side is the economics of it. And it all it goes back to even something like spam. How you ultimately choked off spam was making it way too expensive for certain, you know, people using it to continue to play in the game. I think to your point, some of these really big groups of people that collect a lot of data, whether it's the federal government or, you know, private companies like Google, that data that they have is currency. And they're going to monetize it. And their business models is all about monetizing information. And so to your point, that's one thing. The flip side is if a government intervenes and says, listen, you're doing bad things or you're causing data breaches with this collection of data, look at the amount of, of, of public company, you know, federal government is fortune one, if you want to think of it that way. California is probably in the United States fortune two or three as an entity. If I've got 39 million people, that are being violated by these companies, look at the essentially tax I get from passing something like this in fines, as you alluded to earlier. Cuts well, both that, ways. Well, that's true. That's true. I didn't think about it that way. Give me some uh, some pointers on the on the California law that uh, the average soccer mom might not realize is in place and and, and will help them with their data protection. Yeah, let's, let's take it up a level and say that really... The sad part about this is I think people have been trying to do the right thing in California. Back to protecting data that was lost on laptops with Senate Bill 1386 in the early 2000s that led to a whole rash of global data breach laws, protecting the consumer of people stealing your data and people being bad custodians of it. I think this is just another attempt in a positive way, the legislature stepping in and saying, hey, we need to do something about this. So if you're somebody that's going to start giving data online, I would hope that it's very clear, the law states, it's got to be clear what they're going to use your data for. And I know nobody reads anything about um, computing because that's not what you're there for. You're trying to get in, get out, get on with your life. But I would encourage people to start looking when the allow boxes come up, don't just click them. Really understand when you're giving data to entities of any type, what are they using it for? Are they using it to process like you're using your credit card and they need it to, to identify you to, to complete a transaction? Or are they going to use it for marketing purposes? Or when they ask you, do we have the ability to have third parties use your data? It means that they're actually going to probably sell and monetize that data. And you're going to get a rash of people in your mailbox advertising things that you might not even want, even though they're saying these are affiliated parties. So if, if you're the local person just trying to work through the muddle through this, as I like to say, because they've made it complex with the legal uh, things that they tell you to read, it really comes down to the question you got to ask yourself, how am I going to protect my online persona and identity and keep it from being abused by people or monetizing it without me knowing about it and or leaking it where I can be part of a data breach? 
And those are the key questions I would ask before I clicked on anything, allowing them to use my data other than to transact what I'm trying to do intent-wise. It's a lot of work, right? I'm in this space all day long. That's what I do for a living. I'm online, I'm digital. I've been in this space before any of the digital COVID stuff started. I spent hours and hours a day posting, looking, reading, deleting. And I would say I'm probably an expert at it and it hurts my head. <laughs> Is there any chance that the average person is going to be able to get their head around this and understand how significant it is? Or is it just is it just too complicated on purpose, really? Well, I think some of it is intended to be on purpose because if, if my business model is, is to collect data and sell it and repurpose it, then I'm going to try anything I can to get you to let me do that. I'm going to incent you. I'm going to give you discounts. I'm going to do all kinds of things. I'm going to do clubs that the more you give me, the more I'm going to give you higher tiers. It's the gamification that if you play this game and you give me information, I'm going to give you a, a special something. All of these essentially advertising gimmicks that have been around since the beginning of time, it seems, you know, cave drawings. Fundamentally, it's the same thing. They're trying to get people to opt in and they're trying to get people to do that. Is it complex? It absolutely is. Is it hard? It's, it's one of the reasons why when people say to me who, you know, been in the business a long time, Phil, you don't do a lot on social media. I don't because that's one of the leading ways that people gather your personal information and sell you things. It's one of the ways that hackers take information and impersonate you and cause you to lose identity capability on the web. All of these things are hard and complex. And unfortunately, the laws, like we're talking about, you know, the laws that we've seen are still woefully behind in protecting people online. Talk about the future of these laws. I'm starting to view Google, Amazon, Facebook as utilities, right? So I mean, Facebook just announced they're gonna have their own currency and Google's in my nest and can turn my thermostat and regulate my temperature in my house. Those are the modern day utilities to me. Now, if we viewed all these big box companies as utilities, that would change the whole landscape on how data is handled, wouldn't it? Well, it would actually put them, to your point, in a regulatory environment that they don't exist in today. And that's one of the big issues and debates that's gone on, whether it's things that people will hear in your podcast, things like, what does net neutrality mean? What does it mean for different, different segments of the economy to be able to regulate or do things within the construct of the internet? And again, to your point, if you made them a utility, you would govern them how we govern utilities today. You'd actually govern them in areas that you know, can they be nationalized as an example in the time of warfare? All right. Like utilities can, uh, like manufacturing lines can. That just goes back to how you want to govern the internet. And unfortunately now the internet is, is getting to the point of being so much a part of everybody's daily life uh, in the developed countries that people are really having these debates openly. Uh, and on the one side, you're going to have people say it's going to stifle innovation. It's going to it's going to put tax unburdened tax on people. On the other side, you're having people say, listen, if you do something that causes the Internet to break, look at the upgrades we've seen over the last three months under covid where whole parts of the Internet fall down and then people have no ability to use them. You wouldn't be happy about that if it was, you know, blacking people out in the state of California. Right. With power outages like a utility. Same thing then pertains to services you're contracting for on the internet. So it's a valid point, but it also has some really interesting, you know, drop off when you put it in and look at the the way people are using the internet today. Well, one of my favorite sayings is a camel used to be a horse designed by a committee, right? So when you get too many people involved, it, it could certainly turn into a bigger mess than it is now. That's an excellent point. 
Now, give me some really what you think are some innovations in the California Privacy uh, Consumer Privacy Act. What what really stands out as being maybe a future thing that's going to be expanded to something even better? I, I think the key thing here, when when I looked at it when it first came out, it was announced was they're they're trying to both give you a carrot and a stick. If you if you're a business trying to provide and have to collect data as part of your service offering. They're giving you, hey, if you if you violate it, there's a pretty substantial payment on a per incidence basis. That's that hasn't been done in the U.S. before, and it was something that was widely feared when GDPR came in in Europe. That boy, people are going to go broke, and we've seen some really substantial fines to some really big companies violating GDPR in Europe. I think that was the stick. I think the carrot is they give you enough safe harbors in California to say, hey, here's something for the businesses that if you're doing best practices, if you're doing some of the right things. Back to the inadvertent breach versus the, you know, hey, we, we took your data and we sold it, we didn't tell you, and then we breached it, and hey, too bad. That's a much bigger fine, a much bigger stick. There's incentives on both sides. Do they go far enough? When you're trying to thread this complicated needle, uh, I think you're not going to have anybody on either side that's happy. But the point is, it was done for the consumer and the protection of individual privacy on the internet, what people do with your data. I think that's an innovative step. I think you're going to see it spread much like the data breach laws spread, notification laws as they're known, spread after the early 2000s and now protect people and notify people when their, their data has been misused. I think this is another step in the right direction. And I think it's a net positive. But I think it's like any legislation, like you said, where they started out to build a horse and they ended up with a camel. It's going to take time to refine the hump, so to speak. Phil, very good stuff. Interesting background and data on the California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, we could speak for hours and days on this topic, but I think you gave us a really great, really interesting overview of the whole thing. So thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. And I think it's a, a topic that is more worthy of examination from the middle, because I think right now too many people are arguing it from uh, uh, either side of the coin. Very well said. Thanks again. Thank you. Meredith Moore has a master's degree in education and is the founder and CEO of Gray Lake Training Solutions. Formerly, Meredith was a security training officer for the International Monetary Fund and a security consultant for training and communications at the World Bank. Meredith Moore, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Hi, Chuck. I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm glad you're here, too. Uh, this couldn't be more timely. Uh, we're going to talk about travel security you're the right person to talk to, the founder and CEO of Gray Lake Training Solutions, and you focus primarily on education and training of employees in the area of travel. Yeah, that's correct. We, um, we're a learning and development provider that works specifically for the security industry. And of course, you know, a huge part of business operations uh, in security is keeping people safe while they travel. So that's what we focus on. I've got a lot of experience creating education and awareness programs centered around employee travel. Now, when we say travel security, that's a super broad vertical market, a lot of moving parts there, and COVID only complicates that. But today we're going to focus on really, I think, the most important aspect of that, and that's behavior. Uh, let's, let's say employee behavior to start, but it, it will, of course, encompass personal travel as well. Tell us where you're coming from on this and why modifying behavior in the age of COVID to make people safer is so important. Well, you're right, Chuck. A lot, you know, a lot of security is focused on the threat, and it really should be more focused on the behavior because those are the outcomes that we want people to achieve in order to keep them safer. So it's really the, 
the decisions and the actions that people take uh, that determine their safety and security. And particularly when they travel because they're in a new environment. And we all know when we enter a new environment that's unfamiliar to us, we're more vulnerable. Uh, we have more difficulty navigating the landscape and we don't always know the social norms and we don't always know what to do. So it's really important, as you said, to focus on creating new behaviors and safer behaviors uh, for folks when they travel. And COVID is obviously presenting a, a, another layer of difficulty um, because people are uh, traveling less. They're more reluctant to travel. Uh, there's new challenges, health challenges uh, for people who are traveling. Um, and particularly, I think one area that is really important to focus on is, is people's mental health. You know, the COVID and the pandemic and all of its effects have really uh, frayed our mental health. Um, and when I say mental health, I'm talking about you know, our, our ability to, to cope with everyday things. People are becoming more anxious. People are having more difficulty making decisions and that impacts their, their ability to, to stay safe. So when we take COVID and all of the mental health challenges that it's presented, uh, we take the biological hazards, you know, the, the public health guidance that we have to follow uh, and the ability of, to adapt in a new environment, um, it really makes it quite difficult and we really need to recalibrate, I think, and rethink the way that we, we teach people about how to stay safe during travel. What would you say uh, if, I, if I was going to bring Meredith into my company and say, Meredith, listen, I, I got I to laser beam this. What would you recommend that I put out to my employees right now to change the travel security paradigm? Well, I think that you know, having resources uh, for employees to go to, things like just you know, talking to someone, confiding in someone um, have been shown to greatly help people better deal with um, some of the stressors that are presented in everyday life and now have been exacerbated by the pandemic. So I would ask, uh, you know, any organization or corporation, how are you tying your, um, you know, maybe your employee assistance program, or maybe you have a medical unit at your organization, maybe that medical unit has counselors, stress counselors, you know, are you bringing that into security? Um, because ultimately, uh, when people's mental well-being is taxed or stressed, they are not in, as, as in a position to really be able to make those quick judgments and decisions and emergencies uh, and, and act in a way um, that is quick, you know, when they're faced with a situation that's ambiguous, uh, particularly during travel. I think you touched on a very important point here. On the very best day, in the very best situation, travel is ambiguous. There's a million moving points, and it's difficult to get it right during the best of times. When people's emotional states are weakened, like they are so, so much you know, all across the globe, it, it becomes much more hard for people to react uh, and react quickly. And, you know, it just, it, it, it puts us, it makes us more vulnerable. People are already stressed out about traveling on a good day. Traveling exactly. Yeah. That one of the big things that we need to do to eliminate that is pay, pay attention to human nature. People don't make decisions and they're not motivated by logic uh, and compliance and checklists and, the, and rational 
thinking. <laughs> They're That's motivated right. by their emotions and their experiences, right? And if people are feeling anxious, it's going to cloud their judgment. And, you know, it just, it, we really need to refocus um, security on human nature and align it so it's more, uh, more aligned with how people actually behave and how people think and feel. And like I said, people are not, um, we're just not rational creatures. <laughs> it's just, it's very hard. Yeah. When you have this compliance issue to just put everyone in that box and ticket and hope, hope for the best. I think that whenever we change our risk model, and we, we have to frequently adjust risk models because the world shifts all the time, but in doing so, we mm -hmm. often create a new risk we didn't anticipate. Are you seeing any new risks emerge from these new travel security paradigms? Well, I think, you know, the, the new risks are, yeah, all these health risks. Um, and I think that the, you know, just the uncertainty um, of, of not knowing, uh, you know, our lives used to be fairly predictable. And, you know, for those who travel frequently, you know, they, they know the gist, they have the routine. Uh, but now all that has really been disrupted. Um, because of COVID. So, you know, these new models really have to um, incorporate things that address the mental health issues, address the, the apprehension and the reluctance. You know, it's, it's hard enough to adapt to the health regulations in our own environment, much less travel uh, to, to one that's, that could be quite different. You know, the rates of infections and positivity, the, uh, the access to medical care, you know, all those things have to be taken into account now. So if you've got business travelers who are still traveling amongst the pandemic, uh, then that, um, you know, all those health considerations about what is the quality of care there? How, uh, you know, what, what is the, the hospital bed um, percentage <laughs> in that place that person's traveling to? Are they going to be able to get medical care if they need to? So, I think that the, the, the risk model is much more focused on uh, meeting people's mental health struggles and those, those stressors, um, as well as making sure that, that uh, the medical infrastructure in that place that they're visiting um, is, is sound. So I'm hearing here uh, a little bit of a compliance component, ironically. Right? It, it certainly is a mental wellness issue for sure at the top of the list, I think. But as you consult around the world, different places, certainly compliance uh, where I live in Arizona is going to be different than compliance in, I don't know, uh, a city in Europe that uh, had low infections. How do we deal with that? Exactly, I mean, yeah. that, mu that must make people's anxiety levels go up and down all over the place. Yeah, and I think that it's really, you know, a, a big challenge. Um, you know, for all of those, for all of our risk analysis and all of you know, our, our global, um, just having a, a global pulse on what's going on in the world because it's just so drastically different compared to different regions. And like you said, at one point, you know, the United States COVID cases are soaring and then Europe's tapered off and then, you know, other places in the world have, are starting to rise again. So it's really, you know, a challenge. It's almost like hour by hour, <laughs> uh, almost hour by hour, um, you know, monitoring. Um, uh, and I know that a lot of operations centers, security operations centers are really taxed by this, um, you know, having to keep an eye on not only what's going on locally, wherever their headquarters might be, but 
you know, if they have a global workforce, it really complicates things. Definitely. Meredith, what are some positive effects that are going to come out of this? I, I'm a glass half full guy, right? And I think at the end of the day, we're going to see some benefits to this. Uh, people be more aware of security issues in general, not just related to COVID, but in general. I think people will gain empathy uh, where we need it in society. What are some what are some security solutions you see in the future that are going to be beneficial to us? Yeah, I agree, Chuck. I think that although this is such a difficult challenge and certainly the greatest challenge we've ever faced in our lifetime, it does present some opportunities for us to really refocus and recalibrate. Uh, I think that, you know, one of the biggest opportunities for the security industry is to really refocus. Um, security has been in this post 9-11 mindset for a long time where the, the, our main focus was on national security, on terrorism, uh, you know, and threats like that. And here it turns out that the, the greatest threat of our lifetime is, a, you know, a, a biohazard, a, a pandemic, a health threat. So I think that this is good for security because we're going to start broadening our horizons and we're going to start thinking differently. We're going to realize that uh, that some of these soft skills that we used to think of as secondary skills like empathy and uh, you know mental health and you know these things that we really didn't prioritize as much uh, in the past are now going to become front and center. Um, so I think the pandemic has really given us an opportunity to rethink, reevaluate, and shift that paradigm in a way that can be very positive. And going forward, I think the, the security industry is going to be really more focused on people and less on threats and more on people uh, and supporting people uh, and realizing that people are multidimensional, that we're not just... Um, you know, people aren't just a, a tick in the box when it comes to compliance. So there's a lot behind uh, an individual person. And I think that this pandemic is really helping us realize that. Meredith Moore, founder and CEO of Gray Lake Training Solutions. Ms. Meredith, very, very well said, very eloquent. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you, Chuck. Joe Gursky is a solution architect and the IT director of the USS Midway Museum in San Diego. Joe, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to do a case study today about the USS Midway and how you solved a unique video management problem. The USS Midway Museum has over a million visitors a year. All of a sudden, COVID happens. Your attendance goes down. Your video camera model was, here's our cameras looking at crowd control, and now we have to switch our cameras to six feet distancing. You pivot at the height of COVID and your video management platform becomes more flexible. It has the ability to tailor hardware and camera views to meet your needs of, of all these changing policies and procedures. I think it's remarkable. Tell us about this. Yeah, exactly. Everybody thought this, the two weeks from the beginning was hopefully going to be just about two weeks, right? So everything was status quo for a little while. And then that first month went by and then the second month. And then we went, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't going to come back like we hoped that it would just come back, or at least everything wasn't going to be allowed to come back. So starting from the security side, the first thing that we did was we took it that opportunity because we, we had to look at it as an opportunity. Number one, to keep sane while we were just sitting around waiting for everyone to tell us to do something. But second, uh, there were a lot of things that we couldn't do because we're a kind of a seven day a week operation. Uh, we're not quite 365, but with our event business that was going, 
we would be from about, you know, 7 a.m. till about 11 p.m. So we had like an eight hour window to be able to do changes and things. So we took the opportunity to, to look at all of our security cameras and our systems and what we were doing and said, okay, is it the right use of the storage? What are we doing? Like just to kind of go everything, go over everything. And again, we wanted to do it, not to say that it was a good thing that we, were, we shut down, but hey, if we're shut down, let's check what's going on. About that second month in, they said, all right, well, we're, we have kind of a moratorium on any more cameras, but what can we do as we start to look forward to see what we can leverage on our security camera side about helping us with some of these things that we've been hearing? At that point, it was about 25% occupancy. If you when, if and when you can reopen, how do we maintain that? What can we do? So initially, we started looking at our ticketing system, which is what lets people in. And there was a problem with that, though. We scan people in, but we don't scan them out. So we can tell you how many people came in, but what do we do to know how many people are actually on board to maintain the 25% instead of saying, well, we think there's about 400 people on board. So that's when we started to look at our cameras. And uh, some of the things that we were able to leverage and do, again, without even any additional um, monetary spend, we didn't spend any additional money because, I don't know, for some reason, maybe I'm a little bit psychic. About two years ago, I put in some counting systems saying, hey, you know what? Maybe one day we'll need to count people through our cameras. And it was a cool thing. You know, it's kind of sexy. I want to see what's going on. So we put that in. We had it in. So we started to leverage that uh, because, again, they were going to say, well, no more cameras. You can't buy anything new. And we started to leverage some of the other programs we had just purchased, which is uh, on the IT side, the security event and information monitoring stuff, the SIM stuff, um, S-I-E-M, I always get them confused, or S-E-I-M. But uh, we used a, something called Splunk, which is just a uh, event monitoring tool. And we were able to pull the camera system stuff into Splunk, create a dashboard for our frontline folks to know how many people were not only coming into the museum from the ticketing side and counting in, but also counting out. So anytime somebody broke that beam on the camera inside from the access camera that we're using, it showed us, okay, that person left. And then it would just do the quick calculation, how many came in versus how many gone out, this how many people on board. That gave the guest services folks and even the county the confidence to say, okay, in July, they allowed us to reopen because outdoor museum is how we, uh, is how we are. We've got the flight deck, we've got the hangar bay, they're really open to the outside. The interior spaces are not open, uh, but the exterior ones all are. That allowed us to do that. But again, because we had that out counting in the security system and using it and sending it to Splunk for a dashboard, it allowed us to open. So the real problem of what we needed to do with watching people and the six feet distance and everything was helped just by counting how many people were here. Because based on our square footage, we could also figure out, all right, we can have, I don't know, the numbers like 2,000 or 2,500 on board at once on both the hangar bay and the flight deck. So we can get a lot of folks in at once. But if we got a good response, which we did when we first opened, we, we had to know how many people are here right now. <laughs> and the fire marshal was really happy too, because now we could give, we always kind of knew, right? We always had an account of how many people were there, but now we can really show, hey, not only do we say this is what we have, but here's the data to back it up. That's for me, the big thing back up the data with the facts, using the security tools that we already had, perfect. That's what we needed to do. Did you have any technical challenges? If you really couldn't increase your cameras per se, did you increase your storage? Did you need to increase your storage because you need to take more videos of more people doing different things? Uh, did you have to switch platforms and so on? 
Yeah. Now we did a platform switch previous to this, um, from one company to another, mainly based upon the need for additional hardware. So a year or two ago, we had a different system and it, it was working well for us. But when we got past about 70 cameras, it just went, Oh, it's starting to kind of get a little bit tight and we're going to have to spend more money on hardware. So instead we kind of went to a platform that was better than, and that's the milestone platform in that case. Um, it was better at keeping the large amount of cameras as we kept expanding quickly uh, without having to expand the hardware side. So to your point, did we had, what did we have to do? We moved cameras around a little bit. So sometimes we would have maybe two in a particular area because there were a lot of folks there, but now there's no one there. Now we might have to move one back in the future, but it's been eight months. So we'll see when we have to, but we moved one, what we had into those existing places that we knew where the people would be more often now because the, the routes have changed. And second, on the storage side, I'm, I'm a big believer in three megapixel minimum. Even if it's a small camera in a small space, I want that quality to be second to none when it comes to post-incident. So, you know, it's not CSI with the, you know, zoom or that what was it super troopers enhance, remember enhance where you could just zoom in. We all know that that's <laughs> ridiculous on, on television, right? <laughs> but if you have a three or five megapixel camera, you can kind of get close to that when you want to zoom in on something and it's still post-incident, it still looks good. So my minimum has always been the best cameras that I can get for the money um, versus, well, we have a camera and we got coverage in there and it's good enough. Nope, never good enough. It's better, it better be right or it's not worth doing that. We'll figure something else out. So we moved cameras around, we changed our storage up. And this is again, where I said, I love the quality. I did have to make a little bit of a sacrifice and drop down my frame rate once I got to my long-term storage. So I went from uh, at a minimum of 20 frames. And I, I got taught the lesson on that too by the, the integrators where I said, well, I want 30 frames because you know that's full motion, let's do 30. And they said, well, really above 15, it's you really can't tell the difference. And I'm like, mm. so I, I, but I looked at it, they're right. It, it's pretty good. It's good enough at 15 frames. In other words, it's, it's a good quality that works, especially when you have the quality dialed up a little bit. So at our long-term storage, I changed that from 15 down to 10 and down to five. So it goes down two levels as it goes longer. So we'll still have that video. We'll still have that incident, you know, in the past, but we're saving a bunch on the storage space. So we don't have to buy more. And we're shooting for, from what I can see right now, it looks like we're having between two and two and a half years uh, of, uh, of on-site storage. We have 208 terabytes available um, for the long-term archive. And we have about another hundred terabytes of our levels of archive. So it'll start at 30 days. We'll keep on flash. And then we'll go from flash to the first level of archive for 10 more days and then a second and then a third and a fourth, mainly. So if we do lose a set of drives or a, um, a controller card or something, we can not lose all of the video that was attached to it. We're just losing, you know, a little bit of that before we get it back up and running, you know? So raid levels, everything we try to do is, is as good as we can do best practice it wise. Uh, but I, I never want to get into that situation where because of a decision we made due to budget, we missed something that we really needed. So that's the line that we always walk. Keep the, the budget is going to be the budget. Work within it. Get really creative. Get really creative. 360 cameras. Yeah, they're a little more expensive, but I could justify it by going to my CFO and saying, okay, we need coverage on this area. Okay. It's very large. We probably need two cameras on this corner, two cameras on that corner. And that'll be, you know, three, $3,000, say. And I'll go, or we could spend 1100 and get a 360 camera that'll cover it all. And then of course, what do they say? Well, that's better. That's lower in budget. Let's do that. 
And so that's how we, it's not a, it's not a trick, but it is, it's true. We can spend less money, get the most coverage that we can get for that money out of something like a 360 degree camera. So we use a lot of those too. And especially in some of our guest areas, there's no way we can know exactly where an incident will happen. We always assume we point the camera one place and then it happens what, you know, 10 feet to the right of where the view of that camera is, right? Always. So these 360s and even the larger, you know, um, 180 and the larger uh, views, they just, they work better for us because we have such large areas to cover. It's never going to be perfect, but give you an example. On our flight deck, we have 12 megapixel cameras, which, you know, four years ago was like, what, 12 megapixel? And we can actually zoom all the way to the end. It's not a PTZ. It's just a regular fixed camera. And you can almost read the card that's, I don't know, 380 feet away, something like that. Maybe we have 1,000 feet to cover uh, on the flight deck. So it's, a, it's, it's worth the money to get those cameras because we didn't need six other cameras. We got one. And it was able to do what we needed to do. So that's kind of how we're we're moving forward with budget cuts, but still being able to say, hey, can we use whatever budget we have left to buy a camera that's maybe a little bit better, a little bit more expensive, because it can do the job of two or three cameras. That's kind of how we've been solving that. Joe Gursky, he's the Director of Information Technology for the USS Midway Museum. He walks the walk and talks the talk. Mr. Joe, thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Really interesting conversation. And, you know, a lot of really good technical output to help people make some decisions as we go forward here. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. All right. Thank you for having me.